Well, I want to thank um, you all for having me and actually my other friends from Crossway join you this summer uh, to walk through the book of 1 John. This has, as I was explaining uh, to Brian and Tony, has been an incredible, incredible uh, joy for all of us um, as we are spending a, a significant amount of time of our life preparing for what we feel like God is uh, leading us to, and that is the consistent weekly handling of God's Word. So the opportunities to come and actually present God's Word to you is wonderful, and uh, my desire and each one of our desires is to represent, represent the Word of God uh, properly in a way that um, helps us to understand it better, helps us understand ourselves better, and helps us to serve the Lord better. I'm move this thing away. Um, we've already read the passage today, so I, I think we'll, um, and thank you, Tony, for uh, praying for us today. We'll go ahead and jump into um, the study of the Word. Uh, just another side note, um, Tony mentioned that I grew up in Nebraska. My dad is a pastor of a small church in the middle of nowhere in Nebraska, and we spent the majority of my youth uh, having church in the, above our garage, in the room that was above our garage. And so small gatherings like this here are very dear to my heart, just to see what God is doing in little pockets, in little places uh, that nobody really knows about. But God is sending people and building up His church in His own special way. Uh, so it's really special for me to be able to join you here. So my question for you today is, how do we actually know anything? I mean, truly, objectively, actually know anything. The Apostle John, who wrote the book before us today, lived in a time not that different from ours. A time of deception following the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his ascension to heaven, a time of intense persecution of those who actually named the name of the risen Christ, and a growing presence of competing philosophies and worldviews that offered a counterfeit alternative to true discipleship that came without the intense bite of the true faith. A couple of these alternatives were Gnosticism, going to have a couple of fancy words today, so you can walk away with some three different fancy words. Gnosticism, that's a false teaching that gave credence to teachings of the Old Testament and the early disciples, but added an idolatrous pursuit of knowledge and the existence of lesser gods. Sounds like some of the stuff that we know today. Markianism, a false teaching that claimed that while it claimed to accept some of the early disciples' teachings... It denied the teachings of the Old Testament, claiming that the judging God could not be the same God as the saving God of the New Testament. And then Arianism, a false teaching that denied the eternality of Jesus Christ, claiming that Jesus the Son was created by God the Father and was thus subordinate to the Father in every aspect. These and other teachings are present today, and they're alive and well. They've infiltrated the sanctuaries and homes of those professing to name the name of Jesus. And they wreak havoc on the effectual teaching of the Word of God. These pseudo-Christian belief structures contribute to immense uncertainty in the walls of our churches. You see, brothers and sisters, in our world today, the philosophers and pundits of our time have established what they title, Your Truth. 
You see this everywhere on our social medias. In their determination to suppress the truth, as Paul tells us, that is plain to them because God has shown it to them, the world has proposed an alternative to objective truth revealed in God's Word. An alternative subjective truth that sets the creature over the Creator, worshiping and serving a lie for which they've exchanged the truth about God. Your truth is just that. Whatever you, as an individual, deem to be true. Forget, no, just simply ignore his, what the Creator of the universe has made plain. Not only in His holy living Word, but even in the physical world around you. So where does this leave us? Where does this leave us who profess to know God? After all, what do you define as God? According to your truth, your definition of God may be completely different than my definition of God. Which, according to this subjective, your truth, apparently means the same thing. Some higher power, some mysterious force outside of ourselves that we deem necessary or choose to recognize so that we can kind of cope with the chaos around us. So, how then, how do we know God? I mean, really know that you know God. The one true God as revealed in the Holy Scriptures before us. The God who created the world, who created the universe, who created you and me. Well, the God who created you and I baked into our beings the most foundational, unchanging identifier of humans. Our DNA. The combination of cells that ties our unique individual identity to all of our other characteristics. And that DNA identifier never, ever changes. Whether we're alive or we're not alive, it undeniably ties us to our lineage. So much so that people the world over are jumping at the chance to cross-check their DNA with global DNA bases so that they can understand their lineage and in some instances actually find long-lost relatives. I'm sure some stories may come to your mind in that. Not only does our DNA tie us to our lineage, but it also ties us to the trail that we leave behind us. Most familiar is what we see on shows like Law and Order, where they use DNA to identify criminals, sometimes years or even decades later. Everywhere we go, we leave a trail that unmistakably ties us to our foundational identity that points to exactly who we are and where we came from. Well, here in 1 John, the Apostle John doesn't waste ink exploring obscure facts about the world around him or battling the false teaching of his day in an effort to help us understand how to know God. You see, when training their agents to, to spot a counterfeit, counterfeit money, the FBI doesn't spend their days studying the countless counterfeits being minted. What they teach their agents is to pour over the real thing so that then when they spot a counterfeit, they can identify it as such. In the same way, rather than pending, penning countless volumes to explore all the distinctions of false teaching, John homes in on the essential identifier, the DNA of true Christian faith. Not just what does a Christian do, or what is a Christian like? But what, at their core, at the essential root of their identity, 
What is a Christian? Now, as we read just a minute ago, John sets the stakes quite high in the verses immediately following the passage you heard preached last week. By this we know, in verse 3, in his first of ten statements like this throughout the book of 1 John, John establishes that we can know that we know God. How? By noting whether or not we keep Jesus' commandments and live like Jesus. Look in verses 3, 5, and 6. By this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. In verse, last part of verse 5, By this we know that we are in Him. Whoever says He abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which He walked. This is so important, in fact, that it contrasts those who are liars, completely absent of, of truth, from those in whom the love of the eternal God is perfected. Verses 4 and 5, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. Brothers and sisters, this is only the start of a theme that you're going to see throughout the book of 1 John. Where John draws a line in the sand and says, either you obey God, you obey what Jesus says, or you do not know God. Is it really that simple? But, I mean, isn't this the whole issue that actually led to the coming and crucifixion of Jesus? The, the reality, not just the idea, but the reality that we imperfect humans could never measure up, never perfectly conform to the law of God and prove ourselves right in the eyes of the Creator? Didn't Jesus come to fulfill the law? And what about what John just wrote in verses 1 through 2, what you just heard last week? If anyone does sin. I mean, how is it that John follows the glorious doctrines of Jesus' advocacy and propitiation with a return to the rigid, rigid, rigid adherence to the commands of God? To make matters worse, in the following verses, John goes into new and old commandments. I mean, is he talking about Old Testament versus New Testament? Uh, AC, BC versus AC? And what's more is that John, throughout the book, actually hangs the entire Christian identity on this thesis. In verse 3, or in chapter 3, he says in several places, in verse 6, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. And then in verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. By this is it, it is evident. And this one's quite stark. Who is the children of God and who is the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. And then again in verse 24, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. On its face, and according to our familiar way of thinking, especially as it relates to our natural tendency to point to our goodness as evidence of our eternal security, John's writing appears to say that those who work as hard as they can to obey God's commands and sin as little as possible are true Christians. Is that really true? 
What God wants us to understand today, brothers and sisters, is that a rigid adherence to the Ten Commandments as written in Exodus chapter 20 is not the identifier of a true Christian. Rather, a true Christian is identified by an objective love that is rooted in who they are in Christ Jesus. This is what we're going to see today as we walk through the following verses. That is that a Christian is identified by an objective love that is rooted in who they are in Christ Jesus. So, how are we going to get from keep His commandments to objective love that is rooted in who we are in Christ Jesus? Well, this is how we're going to go about it. We'll see three characteristics that John describes for us that make up this objective reality in a true Christian. One, the nature of their belief. Two, the object or the objects of their love. And three, the source of their security. So first, the nature of a true Christian's belief. After setting the bar at keeping the commandments of Jesus and walking in the way that Jesus walked. John continues in verse 7. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. So to understand this old commandment, the message of this passage actually, and in fact the majority of 1 John It's essential to have a big picture understanding of John. No, I'm not going to go preach John. But John functions, or 1 John functions as a summary epilogue, as I'm sure Eli pointed out a couple weeks ago, to the book of John. So in a flyover of the book of John, we see what John is referring to in this old commandment. The commandment to repent and believe in Jesus. In chapters 1 through 12 of John, we see the theme of belief. Belief in Jesus and everything that came along with him. His words, his deity, his coming sacrifice, and so on. With all of Jesus' miracles and words, commanding or producing faith in those who belong to him. And revealing unbelief in the hearts of all others. The command was established with Jesus' introductory message that we see in Mark 1, which is repent and believe the gospel. That is the summary message of Jesus as he goes about his life. So listen to a few examples of how this command undergirds Jesus' ministry in John's gospel. So in chapter 2, after his first official miracle, where he turned water into wine, John writes, Jesus manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is his first miracle. The purpose of that was not some show of public service, or because he took pity on some, a bride and groom. But it was the manifestation of Jesus' glory that produced faith, belief in his disciples. In chapter 3, during his nighttime meeting with Nicodemus, one of the foremost religious leaders of his time, Jesus explains the crux of the new birth by stating this, "...the Son of of Man must be lifted up in order..." Not just so that he could take care of sin, but that in order, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This, in fact, is a critical shift away from the rigid adherence to God's word, or God's law, to a belief in his gospel. 
as the means of eternal security. Throughout John 3, and then here in 1 John, John uses contrasts of light and darkness, obedience and disobedience, to help us understand the nature of belief versus unbelief. Closing out John 3 with this, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever doesn't believe... No, that's not what he says. Whoever does not obey the Son does not see life. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever, the contrast is whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. So we see then, in John's final contrast in John 3, believe, obey, that, or disobey, that this call to believe is not just some suggestion or a recommendation. The call to believe is a command from Jesus Himself. And only through obedience to this old command is there to be found eternal life and a relationship with Jesus. In fact, Jesus says to the religious leaders in John 5 that they are deeply mistaken to think that they know God and have eternal life because they know the Scriptures, all the while refusing to, as he says, believe the one whom God has sent. Because the religious leader's belief or faith is in their extensive knowledge of the Scriptures, they're without life because they have disregarded Jesus' command to believe in Him, the Son of God. But notice that here in 1 John, this old command only captures about a verse worth of real estate. So this is as if John is indicating that an understanding of this old command is already established in his followers. So that's the first characteristic that John points to, kind of in an assumptive way, that identifies a true Christian is that they obey the command of Jesus to repent and believe the gospel. The nature of a true Christian's belief is faith in Jesus and in his work. John continues in verse 8 by pointing to the second characteristic. Second characteristic that forms the identity of a true Christian. The objects of their love. John points to this new command in this way. A new commandment at the same time It is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you. A command that is foundational, foundational to who Jesus is and who his disciples are. So while John saves his explicit statement of the command until later in his letter, he gives us an idea of the following verses, what he's talking about. It's love for Christians. Love for fellow believers, professors of Christ. John actually uses the same language that Jesus used when he gave this new command prior to his death. We see this back in our flyover of John in chapter 13, where Jesus, after having established faith, true belief in the hearts of his disciples, says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Christians are the objects of a true Christian's love. Look at verse 9. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Look again at verse 11. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness. But by contrast, look at verse 10. 
Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. John's contrasts here point to a fundamental reality of the present active nature of the subject. He is, he abides, or he walks. Regardless of what they say, people are either in darkness or in light. And the characteristic that defines one's true state is the objects of their love. Christians love Christians. What John does here, however, is not just reiterate the command and say, go and do likewise so that you can know that you're a Christian. Go love your brothers and sisters so you can know you're a Christian. He leans in hard to the substantive the foundational aspect of this love, the fundamental DNA part, by saying that this is true in him and in you. He is reiterating Jesus' words that by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. Not only can you know that you know, but all people will know that you are a Christian, when they witness your love for other followers of Jesus Christ, they will see your love for fellow Christians, a foundational characteristic of a true follower of Christ, and know that what you say about yourself is true. And your love for fellow Christians is going to be obvious because this foundational DNA love stands in stark contrast with how Christians regard the world. Christians do not love the world. Look at verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. What is the world that John is referring to here? Well, he helps us out because he uses the term world more than any other author in the Bible. 78 times throughout his gospel. And then 24 times, just 24 times, just in the three short letters here. John's uses of the word here is in reference to the world system. The system that is controlled by the ruler of this world or the prince of the power of the air. He's not referring here to individual people or even human beings in general. We can see this in his equation of the world with darkness, which is passing away. In verse 8, he says, the darkness is passing away. In verse 17, he says, the world is passing away. We also see that, if the na- that, that the, this nature of love is connected to the world, or how it is, in verse 15, that if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Okay? Well, the Father so loved the world, right? That he gave his only begotten Son. So this term world and this love that we're commanded against is clearly not the world or the love to which John is referring to in John 3.16. What John is saying here by contrast is that Christians hate the world. 
John's not a middle-of-the-ground kind of guy. John's not like a squiggly line, that the line over here is further forward than the line back there. John is a black and white, true or false, yes or no author. Christians hate everything that comes along with the world. Now, hate is not a word we often use as Christians, right? Especially, especially when we refer to our attitude toward others. If my children say they hate each other, we have a very long conversation. We might use it in reference to food, colors, or maybe even car brands or motorcycle brands, depending on our affinity. But John tends to use rather shocking concepts that smack us in the face and make us a little bit uncomfortable, squirm a little bit in our seats in order to get his point across. And here, he's making a clear point in the form of a command that the nature of Christian love will result in hatred for the world system. Why? Well, because the root of everything that is in the world, brothers and sisters, is at worst outright rebellion against the God of creation, and at its best, a complete disregard for the, cre- the Creator. And the desires of the world that the world produces, they're the very desires that, necessitate, that led to the fall of men and necessitated the death of Jesus Christ. Now, in our attempt to understand the desires of the world we tend to often refer to the objects of that desire, like money, fame, sex, things, and so on. But what John is emphasizing here is that the world produces inward characteristics that are contrary to love for God and love for Christians. Characteristics that tie the DNA of the offender to the world that is passing away. So I found, in helping us understand this one, just simplifying it, what are these desires of the world? Our pastors gave one explanation in his exposition of this passage, and he said we can think of this list in this way, that the desires of the flesh are like the pursuit of our own personal satisfaction, this idea that I can do whatever I want. The desires of the eyes are covetousness, The idea that I can have whatever I want. And the pride of life is this aspect of control. I can be whatever I want. The desires of the flesh, I can do whatever I want. The desires of the eyes, I can have whatever I want. The pride of life, I can be whatever I want. Sounds kind of like a child, actually. (laughs) As a child's growing up, these are the things I can have, do, and be whatever I want. And these ideas are ingrained in the messages that we hear from the mediums of our day, which are controlled by the world system and the prince of the power of the air. Follow your passion. Follow your heart. Do what makes you happy. Believe your truth. You become the average of the five people you spend the most time around with. So avoid people who conflict with your goals and pursue people who affirm your life goals and make you happy. These messages, brothers and sisters, stand in direct opposition to the love that Jesus commands his disciples. In John 15, Jesus says to his disciples before his death, 
This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Christians are to love Christians in the same way that Jesus loved his disciples, sacrificially and for God's glory. This should and will result in a polar opposite regard for the world. So Christians are characterized by the objects of their love. Christians love, love, love Christians. And in contrast, hate the world. At the very core of the book of 1 John, and this passage in particular, is this establishment of a foundational DNA-like characteristics in the life of of a Christian. The idea that Christians possess certain built-in characteristics is at the heart of what John is communicating here and will be communicating throughout his book. He's not just rehashing commands that Jesus gave when he was alive. John is calling us to recognize the obedience of these commands is foundational to the very makeup of a Christian. They're not simply to-do items. They're non-negotiables in the positive identification of ourselves and others as true believers. But, after reviewing these old and new commandments, you can see how it might be possible to fall into the idea that if we sincerely believe the gospel message, work hard enough at loving people, particularly Christians, and stay as far away from the world as possible, that we can consider consider ourselves a true Christian. But John doesn't leave us with this assumption. He dials in much deeper to a foundational characteristic that is not produced through some outward demonstration of obedience. Rather, in verses 12 through 14, he beautifully unpacks the third characteristic that identifies a true Christian. That is the source of their security. Look with me at verse 12. I'm writing to you, little children, because your names are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I'm writing to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And I write to you, young men, because you are strong. The Word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Now, John's poetic style here in these verses is quite unique compared to the rest of his writing. Though tough to parse out at sometimes, he's rather straightforward, as we've already pointed out. And his rhetoric... In this narrative and in his rhetoric throughout, first, for, throughout John, throughout his three letters, and throughout Revelation. However, at the heart of this section, where John is leaning in to the foundational nature of Christian's love, he pauses to establish the very core of our identity. Who we are in Christ. John gets wonderfully personal 
with a shift from third person back to first person pronouns. Additionally, he builds on his familial terms by adding young men and fathers to his second use of little children. It's as if John sets his pen down, looks at his brothers and sisters in the eyes, and says, you are secure forever because these things are true. In Jesus, your sins are forgiven so that his name will be made great. Jesus lived, laid down his life, and took it back up again for the forgiveness of our sins. And the motivation for God's gift of forgiveness is not based in our ability to obey. It's based in his commitment to his own glory. In fact, Jesus pointed out this motivation when he told the disciples in John 13 the following truth immediately after Judas left their presence. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. In Jesus and for Jesus, our sins are forgiven. But then he says that through Jesus, the word abides in us. Before he left earth, Jesus promised to ensure that we're not left alone in his physical absence. He told the disciples in John 14, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. In verse 8 of this passage, John says that the new command is true in us because of Jesus, the light that is already shining. In verse 10, he says that those who love their brother abide in that light, namely Jesus. In verse 17, he says that the one who does the will of God abides forever. What seals this abiding reality is that the word of God abides in us. And if he abides in us, we're secure forever. But not only that, in Jesus, we are strong and have overcome the evil one. Now, when I read the words, young men, you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one, my natural response is just to retreat in disbelief. I don't feel strong. I don't feel like I've overcome anything. I mean, in fact, I feel quite overcome lately with anxiety and mistrust and fear. I don't even keep Christ's command to obey other Christians like I should. I feel like I'm in a never-ending battle with the forces of evil that I'll never win. But this is what John says. He says that in Jesus, I have overcome. He heard it right from the mouth of Jesus after he foretold the disciples' desertion, but then assured them that though in the world they would have tribulation, take heart. I have overcome the world. Because Jesus has overcome the world, 
Because Jesus was strong. Because Jesus was obedient even unto death. We are strong and we have overcome the evil one. In Jesus, despite our constant weakness and failures, we are secure forever. But he doesn't stop there. He says this to both fathers and children. You have come to know the Father. Before his death, Jesus told the disciples in John 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. This personal knowledge of the Father, brothers and sisters, is fundamental to the Christian's identity in Christ and their eternal security. Jesus says this in his prayer to the Father in John 17. This is eternal life. That they know you. The one, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. John affirms that the Christians to whom he's writing are secure. That they know the Father. While it's true that Christians are characterized by the nature of their belief in Jesus and the objects of their love, John confirms that in the Christians to whom he writes, that their core identity is not wrapped up fundamentally in the what they should or should not do, but rather in their identity with Jesus Christ and what he has done from them. And it is from Jesus Christ in whom we abide, that this objective love comes and flows. Jesus Christ and His love that He showed to us and gave to us and works in us is the very DNA that defines true Christians. A true Christian is identified by an objective love that is rooted not in who we are, but who... We are in Christ Jesus. So what effect should this have on us? Now in this moment, and then in the week to come. Well, first rest in the reality of your security. Just rest. Because your identity is wrapped up in who Jesus is, and what he has done, Rest in the truth that your sins are forgiven. It's done. You know the Father. You are strong. The Word abides in you. You have overcome the evil one. These are not foolish words of self-affirmation. These are DNA realities that are built into us who profess the name of Jesus Christ. So as you wrestle with your shortcomings this week, brothers and sisters... And seek God for the self-discipline necessary to walk with Him. Rest in knowing that you are in Jesus Christ. You have won already. And you're secure forever. But to examine your love. Despite the beautiful reality of our security in Christ, regardless of what we do, we've got to acknowledge, brothers and sisters, that God gives us an explicit command here. Not to love the world. You know, 
Dr. Emerson Egrich says that God gives us commands for the behaviors that are not natural for our flesh. If it came naturally, we wouldn't need a command to obey. At the core of our sinful flesh is a desperate love for the world and everything in it. If you don't believe this, just go read Romans chapter 7, which is written by one of the foremost apostles of that time who bore, under, bore himself under and like he was going to win the race. He experienced this along with every one of us. But, brothers and sisters, God commands otherwise. And this is a good command. That core love for our own happiness and satisfaction does not come from the Father. Despite what the world around us would have us believe, it comes from the world. And brothers and sisters, the world is passing away along with everything that it desires. Are you caught up in the pursuit of selfish desires? Or is your life characterized by love for Christians? In the decades after you die, will the trail that you leave point back to the DNA that ties you to Christ? Or will your trail disappear along with the world? But last and most important, turn to Jesus Christ. If upon closer examination, you find yourself tied to the world's family tree, characterized by a pursuit of your own desires for satisfaction, acknowledge your sin, repent of it, and believe the good news that Jesus Christ came from heaven to personally fulfill the entire law. Die as the innocent sacrifice to appease the wrath of God, and then return as fully God and fully man to sit before our Father to advocate on our behalf as we live this imperfect life. This is the gospel news that affects a complete transformation of your foundational identity, transforming, actually, that DNA part of you that for so long has stood against the God of creation, building into you through the presence and work of the Holy Spirit a new heavenly DNA, and it provides complete eternal security. If, however, on closer examination, you find traces of the world's desires present in your heart. And yet the Holy Spirit confirms His presence in you. Turn to Jesus Christ, who has already overcome the evil one and forgiven you for the sinful desires that captivate your heart. Repent and return to the foot of the cross and find rest in His love and grace and receive his help to follow him in the deep and abiding love for your brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father God in heaven, when we listen to your word preached, it can feel like a fire hose sometimes. It's enough to try to understand six, seven, eight verses. It's another thing to add another 5,000 to them and try to capture it all so that we remember it. I ask you, Father, that in our hearts today, you would take and plant that seed 
that would cause our eyes to look to Jesus Christ, whether we are in him or whether we are not in him, and that your word as planted in our hearts would do a work that would blossom and grow into a clear and crisp picture for the world around us to know that we belong to Jesus Christ and that there is hope in his name. As we go forward in our week, back into sure weakness and potential failures, let us remember this glorious, this glorious truth that in Jesus Christ, we are eternally secure Send us forward in your power and in your love. And we look forward to what you will do in our lives and in those around us. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son and our King, that we pray. Amen.